for joining us for the Tourist Talks Trade Podcast, where we discuss timely topics in trade, national security, cybersecurity, and supply chain issues. Welcome to the Tourist Talks Trade Podcast. My name is Derek Kyle, a senior associate at Torres Trade Law, and I'll be your host today. My first hosting gig of the second season or the winter season, so really excited to get this kicked off. My guest today is Mr. Eric Hinton. Thank you for joining us today, Eric. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Eric is the founding director of the Robert B. Rowling Center for Business Law and Leadership at SMU Dedman School of Law, my alma mater. In addition to directing the Rowling Center, he teaches international business law, European Union law, and ethics and compliance law at SMU Dedman School of Law and the Loyola Chicago University Corboy School of Law. With 25 years of experience in international business law matters, he has worked as a global law and compliance executive in a Fortune 100 company, private equity-backed technology company, and was the first chief ethics and compliance officer for one of the largest franchisers in the world. Eric is also the founder and past chair of the North Texas Ethics and Compliance Council, past chair of the American Bar Association Export Controls and Economic Sanctions Committee, and currently serves as chair of the International Law Committee of the State Bar of Texas. Very excited about our conversation today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the role of ethics and compliance programs in international businesses. And before I, I talk any more about that, I'm just going to uh, start off, Eric, and, and ask you to please describe your background and, and what led you to your current position. Yeah, thank you, uh, first of all, Derek. And we're honored to have you as our alum, as well as others at the firm. And I commend the uh, Torres Law Firm for uh, taking on topics like this. So thank you. I'm also uh, gratified to see international trade lawyers practicing from here in Dallas, which is, uh, I think, an important addition to the the bar. Uh, so the question, I think, was, how did I get to where I was? And, and let me say, first of all, so I am the director of the Robert B. Rowling Center for Business Law and Leadership, um, as well as teaching certain courses in key topics like international trade, um, international business, as well as uh, compliance. And I like to say that I'm a practitioner who happens to direct a center and um, teach a little bit, all right? So when I come at these topics, I, I really look at them from a practitioner side. And that's one of the main objectives for the Rolling Center generally, but also for me in the way that I structure my classes to teach students. So how did I get here? Well, um, I'm actually from a, a ranch out in the West and uh, we didn't have a whole lot of international business going on there. So <laughs> probably part of it was just my desire to to I loved it there, but what was the desire to explore uh, the world beyond um, my part of, of the United States? And so very early on, I decided I wanted to do something global and probably within the law. I uh, studied political science and international relations and then had a wonderful opportunity kind of at the last minute to study European integration um, at the University of Limerick in Ireland, and I received a, a fellowship from the European Commission to do that. And I think that piqued my interest in international affairs generally. It gave me some background in international law and business. And then I went on and did my, my Juris Doctor here in the United States. And then similarly, and, and actually by design, I got a fellowship to then pursue uh, graduate studies in law, so an LLM at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, studying EU law. And, um, you know, so much of that was was foundational, I think, 
in uh, having a career in international uh, business law. I then went to work uh, at a law firm doing international trade work. And that's my first exposure really to the topic um, somewhat that we're talking about today. And I would say at, at that time, ethics and compliance as a discipline was still a little bit in its, in its infancy and certainly hadn't de uh, developed to the degree that it has now. So I grew up in international trade. I became in-house counsel for Caterpillar, uh, which was a wonderful experience. And during that time, uh, which was almost 10 years, I wore a number of hats, including trade counsel. Uh, I got the chance to be a general counsel for a division at, in Brussels, Belgium for four years. Wow. So that gave me the chance to really do whatever comes through the door um, in, a, in a pretty challenging area and also in an oil and gas uh, services uh, related job. So, you know, that really added to the intrigue there. Uh, then came back to the United States uh, and worked within Caterpillar, then relocated here to Dallas, had some wonderful opportunities. Um, my most recent, I guess, in-house experience was as the inaugural Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer of the 7-Eleven Corporation. Um, and then I had the opportunity to come to SMU and take on a very different and challenging role in creating the Rolling Center um, and giving it a form and bring it to what it is now, which is, you know, I think one of the foremost centers for business law and leadership in Texas, certainly, but also the United States. Excellent. V very interesting. And one thing I noticed, you know, throughout um, the bio and then your description there, uh, you mentioned compliance and ethics as, you know, as as a, a real role in business. It's been around, but you're, you're the first chief ethics and compliance officer. Um, th there are other inaugural things related to ethics and compliance. So it really is clear that this is this is a an area that's that's really developing and it's I don't want to say it's in its infancy anymore, but but it it's gaining a lot more exposure, you know, than it had been in the past, it seems. That's true. Well, well, that's for sure. And um, kind of aside from just the trade area for a moment, um, you know, back when I got out of law school, you had these various uh, compliance areas and it was mostly the lawyers that cared about it. Um, you had the collapse of Enron. Um, and the development of Sarbanes-Oxley and the revision of the sentencing guidelines around the early 2000s. And that gave you know, a huge amount of impetus to ethics and compliance as a legal discipline, as well as structurally within companies as to how to establish ethics and compliance offices, and even the role of ethics and compliance officer. And so you know, I think I, I had the advantage of being in a, a regulatory compliance area to begin with, and then uh, got to sort of ride the wave um, to ethics and compliance as an actual job and discipline. Um, you know, it's interesting, I teach a class in ethics and compliance to SMU Deadman Law students, and I try to take them through some of the history, um, which seems like ancient history to a lot of students these days, because um, interestingly, they haven't uh, heard of Enron or maybe weren't even uh, born when that happened. But, you know, in the, in the terms of the law, that is a relatively short period of time and you know, back in the day, you had very few companies that really had thought about this. And now I would say pretty much every major company has or should have some sort of uh, structured ethics and compliance program and a governance structure to go along with that um, in order to uh, maximize the most effective, uh, to maximize and create an effective program. To, to take a step back, you know, for our listeners, I, I do want to ask, um, 
you know, and, and you are a professor, you teach on this. So, so what do these, you know, broader concepts, especially of ethics and also of compliance, what do those mean for a business? That's part one. What, what do these mean for a business? And then part two, which is, I mean, I'm curious about, how are these concepts different between, between ethics and compliance? Are they always taken together or can we differentiate the two of them? Well, it's funny you asked that because I, I remember when I was early in the practice of law, there was an article um, that posited the following. It said, did compliance kill ethics? And I think the concern there, and, and maybe this shows that ethics as a discipline and compliance as a discipline were quite different and really hadn't come together yet, I think. Um, but but the idea was that by focusing on compliance, which is often the case with lawyers and compliance, including trade professionals, you somehow get away from what the ethics of an organization is. And in some ways, ethics might be a proxy for culture. Um, but if you only focus on uh, compliance, you might get away from that. I think the opposite could be true too, which would be that if you focus only on ethics, nobody knows what the rules are. Nobody knows what uh, you know the controls are and what things you actually do to comply with the law. My view is that it's um, two sides of the same coin. You need both. And you'll see in the various guidances from the US government that they agree with that too uh, in principle. And so, you know, uh, an organization has to decide what their ethical uh, position is, and often that's through a code of conduct, needs to be represented by tone at the top with their, their um, leadership. It also needs to be compliant, which really is the floor. It's really the, the minimum you should do, um, but includes policies and procedures and um, investigations and also remediation for things that might go wrong. And I guess that's the other side of the coin. So in an effective program, you want to address both. And I think you, if you don't, it's to your peril. For instance, you could have the very best compliance program, but if you don't have the cultural um, and ethical backbone to support that, it's really not going to help you and, and vice versa. Interesting, interesting. And so, so we're talking about um, ethics and compliance in a broader sense, but what does this mean for a company? You know, what is the importance of, of this company uh, of creating an effective ethics and compliance program? So that's a great question. And in my opinion, minimally every organization and every company needs to have some sort of ethics and compliance program. And there are a number of guidances out there that tell you what that should look like, again, as, as a bare minimum, right? Um, but there are lots of advantages uh, to having one. Some are obvious, maybe others less obvious. I mean, first of all, I think it helps your company do the right thing. And, and fundamentally, that's the reason why we want to have an ethical and compliant organization is because we want to do the right thing. Um, now, does that mean that that's the only reason? No, there are other reasons um, to protect your company from uh, risk of litigation, from risk of enforcement, to protect the reputation, to uh, basically meet the obligations of your regulatory requirements or of your board of directors, maybe your external auditors. There's so many reasons why you need to have uh, an effective program, but but I think uh, fundamentally those are the, the 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 primary reasons why you would have that. Uh, as I like to say to my students, which of you wants to buy the product that came from the unethical company? And nobody does, right? And, and there's so many, unfortunately, examples out there right now of companies that did the wrong thing and as a result had products that were faulty or 
or shareholders or investors or just regular consumers who have lost a lot of money and been injured by uh, some sort of wrongdoing by an, an organization. And this is is a bit of a, a side conversation, but we've been seeing it a lot more. Uh, you mentioned investors, and this goes to um, the whole ESG angle, which I, I'm thinking in the past few years has probably uh, come up a lot more, I would expect, in ethics and compliance circles, because that does seem to be more of an investor movement that, that we didn't hear about as much, you know, even five or six years ago. That's a that's a great point. Um, I, I'm still a little uncertain what ESG even means. Okay, and I think um, therein lies lies the the detail, right? Um, there were a number of of um, targets that you've seen in the past. They had different names like corporate social responsibility, sustainability. Now we hear the word ESG or the term ESG, um, but I think it really depends on who's talking about it and on some level what the objectives are of the parties that are trying to put it into play. Um, there are a number of institutional investors that are asking for ESG to be present in a number of, of um, environments. Um, the Business Roundtable has put forward some, some thoughts and guidance as to uh, who they think the proper stakeholders are uh, for a corporation. So there's a fair amount of dialogue out there as to uh, what this should look like. So what does that mean for compliance? Well, in my opinion, I don't think ESG and compliance is the same thing. And I do think that that's going to sort of flesh itself out over time. And I certainly would love to research and think about that more. That being said though, at least the G, so governance, and maybe the S, social, have a pretty significant tie-in with ethics and compliance. Now they're not the same, um, but I can see overlap there. The E, probably to a certain extent, yes, when it comes to environmental uh, programs, but that one probably is a little less obvious to me. But definitely the G, which is for governance, fits right into the nature of your organization and how you govern it um, in a way that's compliant with the law and with the values of the organization. So stay tuned on that one. Yeah, right. No, I, I mean, and it's it's a buzzword. We, we hear it a lot. It is... Um, a topic that that even we get asked about because it ties into everything. But I do appreciate uh, you know the, the statement they're not the same thing. And, and so I think we're gonna you know as this conversation goes on, we'll get more into um, what what the ethics and compliance side really looks like, which leads to um, my next question, um, which is kind of basic, similar to the last one as far as creating an effective one. Um, but if, if we're laying out, you know, for, for a business, say someone's been in a vacuum, they, they don't know um, anything about these, these ethics and compliance programs. Um, this is a two-part question. Uh, I'll preview the second part. But the first part is, what does a standard compliance program look like? So just base compliance program for a company. And then afterwards, we're, we'll go into part two, which is, you know, what happens uh, once we move that into the international sphere? So. Uh, by previewing that second part, um, maybe you can talk us through the steps and, and any differences between standard compliance program and then the difference once uh, that business goes international. So th that's a great question. And I would first say that I don't think there's such thing as a standard program. All right. And the reason why, and this is borne out in the various guidances from uh, the U.S. government, is that it needs to be tailored to the business itself. So. Uh, depending on your uh, footprint, and, and we'll get to the international part in a minute, 
depending on the type of products or services that you offer and the level of risk and also regulation that goes with it, the number of employees you have, the types of employees, uh, the, the size of the organization, all those things go into what type of program you have. So it needs to be tailored to the, the correct um, factors that you're looking at. That being said, the US government and other uh, agencies and, and other uh, parties, I would say around the world, have clarified what the essential ingredients or elements should be uh, of a program. I like to call in my cast, class the uh, building blocks of an effective program. And this is really what you need to have programmatically at a global level for your organization. So I draw those primarily from the US sentencing guidelines, which is one of the oldest guidances that we have. Um, interesting, it was, was written for the benefit of uh, federal judges, district court judges in mm -hmm. mitigating penalties. The reality though, is that they mostly get used by ethics and compliance professionals mm -hmm. Um, in designing programs, at least in my opinion. Um, and those have been refined further by a number of guidances, including from OFAC, which I think is relevant to your audience. Also from uh, the Department of Justice, which is probably in many ways the most uh, helpful guidance that we have. You see others that are, I think are indicative and helpful from the SEC and DOJ around uh, anti-corruption, also some international standards including from the Serious Fraud Office in the UK uh, as it relates to anti-corruption, as well as COSO 2013, which is a, a different kind of standard that can tell you what elements you need to have. But what are those elements basically? Well, the way I break them down or, or the building blocks as I call them is, uh, what is your uh, board oversight? So how does the governing authority as the sentencing guidelines say, um, view the program, become involved with the program and oversee its effectiveness and enforcement as well as its resourcing. The next one is what I called responsibility. So who separate from the board within the organization is responsible for uh, overseeing compliance. Doesn't mean they're responsible for compliance with the law. It means they oversee the program and make sure that things that need to occur within the organization are happening. You then have your risk assessment. And this is, is one of the common denominators across all of those guidances that I mentioned. And when I teach my students and when I've implemented programs, that's the one that I handle first is you know assessing the risks within the response uh, relative risk areas of compliance or overall for the organization. You need to have policies and procedures and controls. You need to provide training and communications around those policies and procedures and controls and uh, the organization's um, code of conduct generally. You also need to offer incentives for those that do the right thing and comply with the various policies and procedures, controls, code of conduct, as well as a way to effectively investigate and discipline um, those employees that do not. It's also important to screen employees, and this is more at the programmatic level, to make sure you're hiring those people that are prone to do the right thing. And then through their employment with the company, use mechanisms to assess and reward them and promote them based on their conduct. Uh, one of the things we learned from Enron, and this is really uh, manifest in the sentencing guidelines, is that um, many of the wrongdoers that basically brought the company down were known to have committed um, unethical or potentially cr criminal acts really early in their their careers, but nobody checked them on them. And because they were high producers or maybe because they were effective in moving 
um, themselves forward and advancing with the organization, those things uh, were kind of put to the side and, and the company might have looked the other way. So that's important. And then finally, and this is key to any effective program, is the ability to monitor your program, to audit its effectiveness, and then ultimately to modify the program when you find issues that come up that uh, are challenging or maybe even um, have had to been reported to at a government authority. Um, one of the, the way that they, they address it in the OFAC guidance is looking for the root cause and then addressing that. And I think that's a, an important way to look at it. So at a minimum, this is what you would need to have in your program. Now, the, the various guidances that I mentioned, in particular the DOJ guidance, have added some additional elements that I would also recommend any organization implement. One is, what is your approach around the use of third parties? So in, in the export area, you know, what is it when it comes to your freight forwarders or your customs brokers? Uh, what are these other parties, you know, maybe that that could provide a risk of transshipment to an embargo destination or maybe transship some sort of controlled item um, that shouldn't be exported in the way that that it's being exported. So, you know, what's your third party uh, due diligence um, and oversight process? Also related in some ways to that would be what is your, your strategy around mergers and acquisitions so that okay. when you bring on um, a target company, if you're the buyer, and you're buying assets or certainly entities that you understand number one what it is you're buying and that's priced into the nature of your deal but also that once that entity has been acquired and is being integrated into the compliance system of the company that you address any challenges or problems um, that might have arisen or become clear through the due diligence or the acquisition process okay so a lot to unpack there a couple of follow-ups I, I wanted to ask about um, we often hear, you know, in developing compliance programs or, or in talking to people, there is the, the disciplinary aspect, right? Um, you can up to and including termination if you don't don't flag something of concern. Well, we don't talk about as much, and you mentioned our incentives. So is that incentivizing compliance in the form of, you know, could it be promotion or, or more responsibility? Is there ever... And is it even ethical to to tie that to to increased uh, I don't know bonuses or or salary? What what does the incentivization look like in a compliance program? That's a good question, and I, I can tell you that I think in some ways this is one of the more difficult aspects of a program to implement. And you know, a lot of my peers and people that are are in the ethics and compliance roles struggle with this one. Um, some companies do actually offer. Um, some sort of incentive or reward or at least recognition for people that are willing to go over and above um, or at least at a minimum um, comply with the law and do the right thing uh, when it comes to the program. I think what's challenging though is to know who those people are. Um, it, it also can provide sometimes some challenges in that you don't want to incent people to do the wrong thing so that they get rewarded for the right thing. Um, I think in the the process of advancement. So certainly you would want to have some sort of ethics and compliance dimension when you're evaluating employees for their annual review for performance. 
And definitely when you want to think of promoting them, especially to positions of trust or seniority within the organization. So that seems pretty clear. Um, there's some discussion recently coming, especially out of the DOJ about this particular um, topic. And, and I direct our listeners to the Monaco memo, which uh, came from Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco recently. It's very hot off the press, but it talks quite a bit about uh, what incentives should look like, or basically what incentives might you take away, including the clawback of certain compensation when people do the wrong thing. Now, you know, what that looks like in practice, I think we'll have to see over time. Uh, can you discuss the the potential differences uh, between structuring compliance and ethics and compliance program uh, between a, a large corporation as compared to a relatively small um, company and, and what are going to be the differences? Uh, you know, there, there are obviously resource differences. What, how does that look different, uh, implementing one of these programs between different sizes of companies? So for instance, in my class, we use a great hypothetical that has a company that's relatively small. Uh, it's sort of just past the startup phase, um, but is, is going to go public and has big dreams as far as where it wants to go and also is expanding globally. It's a challenging position to be in, which some of your clients might be in because if they're thinking about international trade issues, by definition, they are global, which adds to the complexity and also regulatory and compliance risk that the enterprise might face. Um, so how do you structure a program? Well, I, I think number one, you start with the risk assessment, as I said earlier, and any organization, regardless of their size, needs to complete some level of objective to the extent you can uh, risk assessment to understand where your risks are. That way you're spending your money and your time addressing the risks that are highest to the organization. In other words, you don't wanna be spending your precious resources on things that aren't the most risky, all right? So that's the first thing. Um, you, you know, it comes out in other areas. So structurally, how do you want to put together a governance um, mechanism? Do you need to, do you have the resources to put together a program with a dedicated ethics and compliance officer? And how do you handle um, helpers or assistance or um, resources to that compliance function when you're out in the field and when you're in other countries? And to what extent can you have dedicated resources or do you need to use uh, borrowed or shared resources, maybe within internal audit, maybe with uh, HR um, to, to oversee your program? would also include how much you're able to spend on outside counsel, um, would, would also uh, uh, determine how much you could utilize um, audit and monitoring functions to be able to look at the, the, uh, the effectiveness of your program. I mean, a really obvious way would be what sort of anonymous hotline do you set up? That's one of the key things, essential things for an ethics and compliance program, um, but it's not necessarily the easiest or uh, least costly thing to do. And so, you know, what kind of uh, program do you set up to administer the hotline? How do you address calls that come in? How do you follow up? How do you triage things and ultimately close those out? So those are just some, some uh, things that come to the top of my head, but it really has to be um, right-sized for the, the organization you're dealing with. Great. Yeah. And, and we, we deal a lot with, you know, from larger corporations that do have that anonymous hotline, um, understandably that that is different to to organize that and set that up in, in a smaller company. So that's just one thing you mentioned that that stuck out to me. Mm -hmm.
Um, so, so next question, uh, I'm curious about this one. Uh, can you describe what sort of situations or, or whether there's particular laws or, or even practices that companies have that you think pose some of the biggest risks uh, to companies in the context of ethics and compliance? Yes. I'm going to caveat it with what I said before, which is really it depends, right? And we know that as lawyers and compliance professionals, but it does depend on the type of organization you are, uh, what your risk profile is, and where you're doing business and with whom, okay? And, and even in the trade area, right? Like if you're selling software uh, with encryption versus widgets that are uh, year 99, right? There's going to be a different kind of program that you you put into place. But, but um, you know, overall, I think there are some key uh, topics that I'm hearing and seeing that apply across the board. Certainly most ethics and compliance officers and also members of boards of directors who oversee ethics and compliance programs are worried about data privacy issues, mm -hmm. especially as regulation um, of, of personal data proliferates across uh, the world, but even here in the United States. Uh, the other one is cybersecurity, which is interesting and I want our, our, our listeners to know that data privacy and cybersecurity are not the same thing, okay? They maybe go hand in hand or, or at least uh, are siblings, they're definitely not the same topic and you need to address them separately. Um, the challenge too with cybersecurity is there's still quite a bit of emerging law. So to say what cybersecurity law is, I think is different than to say what privacy law, which is more well-established. Um, so those are two that I hear of. I think you need to always keep track of the bread and butter things too, like conflicts of interest. I mean, it's not quite as exciting as um, cybersecurity and privacy, but it, it's a tale as old as time. And, and many cases um, you see confl conflicts of interest things coming up. So you don't want to take your eye off the ball um, of those. Certainly, as I mentioned before, um, of sexual harassment, um, hostile work environment, discrimination, those are always, always things you need to watch out for. On the trade side, you know, I think it's sort of the same topics that you're always worried about. So that would be, you know, exporting without a license or um, some sort of transshipment that happens of your goods that you, that you um, had happened because you didn't know who your customer was, right? And And I think most of us know what those compliance mechanisms are. Fortunately, the technology has advanced, so we're able to screen um, third parties a lot better, but you still have to be vigilant and set up a program that, number one, is effective, but also that you could defend in the case that um, there were some sort of investigation or enforcement action related to your company's um, activities. Yeah, I, I love the last point about um, making sure if there is an investigation, that's why, you know, we deal with clients and, and they will tell us that they have screening procedures and some, some are great. They have written procedures and policies, but some it's, it's more of an ad hoc. Um, yeah, we, we did screen, but then maybe they're not keeping appropriate records uh, mm -hmm. of the screening and that sort of thing. And that, that really is why, you know, this compliance program, it's, it's can't really be an ad hoc program uh, that's not written down because then where's your evidence, right? You, you have to be able to support it. Yeah. And so, you know, I talked a lot about um, the building blocks of an effective program. And when I talk about that, I, what I'm saying is, what does the global program look like? But what you need to remember, and this is regardless of the size of your organization, is that while you might have the building blocks in place, you need to have parallel structures or at least 
um, a program for every single substantive compliance and legal area that comes within your company. So, you know, trade trade compliance is, is an important area. And as we know, that can be pretty complex even in and of itself. That can include uh, products that are controlled uh, by BIS, the dual, dual use items. It could cover items that uh, are defense uh, articles. Um, and then you have the, the sanctions that come into play, right? And all of those are really different and discrete areas, even though we kind of lump them together. And then abstract out onto that international sanctions or international controls, you have a pretty uh, complex regulatory scheme and you need to have those um, structures in place in order to have an effective program. So for instance, you need to have responsible parties within the organization who understand and have expertise and are overseeing the trade controls uh, program. You need to do training, you have to do a risk assessment, you need to have policies and procedures. At some level, you need to have oversight fundamentally by your board of directors to make sure that it is, is effective. Then finally, you just need to monitor your program. Maybe you need to implement software to know your customer, and then you need to modify it based on um, issues that come up. And, and you're not gonna get a pass just because you're a small organization. And I would say, uh, never would I want to see uh, either as in-house, outside counsel or even teaching a class in compliance, an organization that did not have a written program. In, in other words, in my opinion, if you, you don't have a written program, you really don't have a program. And that's certainly not one that you could defend if there was any sort of problem where you were being investigated or ultimately enforced against or, or uh, um, you know, indicted for in worst case scenario. Yeah, right, absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I know there's, there's compliance managers listening. They're like, yes, yes. That's exactly. good. <laughs> yeah, so, so definitely engage Torres Law, you know, to help you uh, get your written program in place. It's, yes, yes, for sure. Um, okay, so so this next question I, I find to be an interesting one, and this is goes back to um, what we may be seeing in the news or, or legal publications. Uh, and it's, are, are you aware of, are you seeing any recent trends in, in enforcement cases or trade controls? global trade practices um, that you think companies should particularly you know, be monitoring or, or be made aware of if they're not already? That's a good question. And as I said, even in the area of trade, it's pretty diverse as to, to what the risks are and also the regulatory regimes. And I don't practice trade law from day to day anymore. So I'll caveat with that. What I would say, and this is, I think, clear to everybody, is you definitely need to understand and keep up to date if this is an area of exposure for you uh, with regard to the Russia sanctions and things that uh, relate to that. And you'll, you'll realize too that uh, more than most uh, sanctions programs, this one's more global. So you have to look at what's going on in the United States, but also in the EU and other countries. So uh, that's definitely a dynamic situation and can, can have pretty significant effects. Um, you know, and it, I would encourage those that are in-house to, to become familiar, but also utilize outside counsel to really give some specialist um, expertise on that. So uh, that was the first one. I think it's always, always important to keep up to date, as I said, on the technology and on the, the ways that you can screen third parties in order to exercise due diligence and understand um, where your products are going so that you're not having any sort of liability as relates to that. Um, from a global perspective, there are a few things that I think are emerging and I mentioned um, this recent Monaco memo and 
and as I said, it's new, but but it, it still remains to be seen how that plays out. But there's some important elements that relate to that. Um, a couple things I'll throw out. One was the the compensation issue, uh, but there's also some other questions as relates to what extent individuals versus entities are going to be prosecuted and held responsible for compliance failures. I think the trend over time has been to go after more individuals, and that uh, certainly could be the case within the, the international trade sector. Um, and also, uh, you know, certainly it would be the case potentially with sanctions and with export control violations. Um, the other thing that's come out of that memo is, is once you settle a case, what does that look like? And to what extent will um, will prior misconduct factor into how the the department uh, decides your the resolution of your case? And also um, whether or not they would uh, appoint a monitor um, to oversee compliance with any sort of agreements that you would have with the Department of Justice. So I think it's important to remember that even though trade is a specific regulatory scheme, it ultimately could be subject to enforcement and resolution under the rules that you see that apply through the DOJ. Absolutely. Well, Eric, this has been a very informative uh, and interesting discussion about ethics and compliance. I, I really appreciate you joining us today. I, I wanted to ask, is there anything further you'd like to add or anything you'd like to plug that's that's coming up uh, at the, the rolling center or anything else going on? Uh, Thanks for that opportunity. Uh, sure, yes. Uh, first of all, I'd include uh, everyone to to uh, follow us on social media. The Rolling Center is on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. You can find out about our current events, uh, also with um, information that we provide or what's going on with the center. I also wanted to plug in, uh, just because I can, uh, a plug for the um, upcoming Institute for the International Law Section of the State Bar of Texas. It's a full day of CLE on international uh, topics, including some trade topics uh, that will be held uh, at the SMU campus on April the 20th. So, you know, if you're able to go out to the State Bar page, uh, we'll shortly have information posted on that. It's a great opportunity to learn more about international law and also to network with your uh, State Bar of Texas colleagues here in Dallas. So thank you for that. Great. Again, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. I really yeah. appreciate it. It's great. Thank you so much, Derek.